Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. This is episode 77. I am Kirk Bailey and I am once more foraging around the archives of Boss Talks and dusting off some evergreen and ever-relevant talks to share with you, our wonderful listeners. This week, Eva Pascoe talks about making trend spotting a business. So much of what we take for granted today has only just been invented. Some of it by Eva Pascoe. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Eva has an extraordinary track record of spotting and exploiting trends, having founded the world's first internet cafe, then joining Topshop as Launch MD, where she launched the world's first WAP-based mobile e-commerce solution. These days, she's Director of E-Commerce at The Retail Practice, working collaboratively with retail clients to optimise and enhance their online stores. In this talk, Eva visits some of the trends she spotted and some that she didn't see going the way she thought they would. Happy listening. So I'm Eva Pascoe. I've been around for a bit, but uh, my kind of entry to the internet world was really Siberia. Uh, back in the 1994, I was sitting in... Uh, University College, minding my own business, interneting away, uh, emailing the world and trying to avoid writing my PhD. I'm sure many of you had the same experiences. Uh, these PhDs are made to try you, and I think they're endurance tests rather than anything else. Uh, and I realized that uh, what people loved uh, more than doing their PhDs around me was emailing and bulletin boarding and old dot newsing and all sorts of things that people used to do on the internet before it became publicly available, but the delight factor was what attracted me. And I realized that if we were all so delighted about interneting around, then everybody else on the high street would as well. Uh, And I was just coming out of a software business back in Poland, so we had a little tiny bit of money, which we chucked into this really scrummy building in Whitfield Street. Uh, It was uh, before uh, television studios. It was completely wrong for a cafe. But we somehow managed to um, so re-engineer it back and made it a really, really nice place with lots of big bulky computers. So if you look for the windows here, these computers are enormous, just enormous. And they were completely overwhelming the place. But, you know, nobody cared. When we opened, I initially was aiming to provide um, software pro- uh, training for women. That was kind of my feminist thing because we were all cyber feminists then. Uh, but when we opened, we had a queue 3D plonk around the building, but not a single woman. So I thought, oops, that's the business plan that has got to be a bit rethought. And we just put it away, organized training for women as a separate business, and carried on with Siberia as it was for the, for the audience that turned up. And it took about a good three years before we started rebalancing the genders a bit. Uh, but my kind of learnings from that type from the startup point of view, was really about the principle of what people like. I I came up with the data PhD, so I was studying nuclear power station dynamic decision-making design, and I was full of these models and kind of really numbers, lots of numbers. You don't do anything until you've got lots of numbers. And then it turns out that actually you can't do that with people because your numbers will change them. So it's best to just observe what delights them 
and interfaces developed that delight people that were successful. So I think everything we did so, since then was, was guided by the principle of delight. And I would thoroughly recommend that because although it's terribly hard to measure, when you see it, you know it. When people love something, you can see the big smile on the faces and you can see the drive and they're going to queue for hours on end for 10 minutes on email as they did before because it was so delightful. Quantifying delight is what I spent last 20 years of my life because it's a bloody hard thing to do. Uh, it's, a, it's a combination of multivariables, it changes, it's a dynamic concept, so I think there's a good PhD in that, but delight is where, where we're at. So we had great fun with Siberia, we opened with a little bit of money, the money ran out immediately, as money does usually. So we had to go around the world trying to find investors, because that was 1994, kind of in the middle of a really big recession in UK, and we were all a bunch of tax combination of uh, entrepreneurs. I had three fantastic co-founders. None of us looked like a good bet. So the banks kind of like, mm, don't think so. This internet thing, now nah, will never work. So we heard it so many times, eventually we gave up on the banks and ran, ran out as following Nick's advice in a way to US and sat in uh, America for six months. And indeed, you know, you cross the uh, green, the Central Park enough times, you will find an investor. That's where they are. So we bought ourselves rollerblades and just networked in the park. And it's pretty much how it was because uh, we ended up bumping into so many uh, kind of young and really agile um, private offices investors, young kids who were running their the private family money, who were bored stiff with having to invest in real estate in New York. And we were kind of a brush of fresh air. So, so we got a little bit of money from um, Mick Jagger, uh, Michael Douglas, all sorts of people who, who were just interested where that whole internet will take them. Because musicians were really early on to the medium. Very, very early, David Bowie um, was uh, setting up BowieNet. And we, were the, we had the honor of interviewing it when BowieNet was launched. And one thing which he said which really stuck with me, he said, my music is never finished until the fans have a play with it. So he understood the mashing really, really early on. And I think that's what we understood as well, that to bring people in the business, you have to let them play with it. So our first bunch of investors was very illustrious, but we were really lucky, which is really going back to the fact that the data will never tell you enough. Siberia was in Whitfield Street, which is on the back of Goodschmidt Station. Little did I know, because I lived in my PhD bubble, that next door was the biggest European recording studio called Whitfield Street Recording Studio. And basically for three years, everybody who was recording in that Whitfield Studio was running up to Siberia. So we taught Kaylee Minogue how to email, uh, Bono how to do FTP, and you know, just take it from there. So basically everybody in the music business came through my door. Complete coincidence. They probably would have found us anyway, but it was just amazing to see how these words collided in a beautiful way. Because internet at the beginning was really ugly. You know, for those of you who remember, it was just ugly. There were no phones to play with. It was just really very, very limited. And somehow the music brought, it, brought that delight. And although it was slow and took very long time before it actually worked properly, music drove it. And that's something that we always have to remember that you know, it's not just tech. The tech is a mean to an end, but the delight is the end. 
So, so that learned, taught us a lot of things and also taught us a lot how to internationally build companies <laughs> because we ended up um, running a number of different franchises around the world and having different uh, shareholders in some of them. So it was a really complicated business. Uh, and just at the point where we started thinking about opening a really big cafe in New York, Stelios showed up and decided to set up something called Easy Everything, <coughs> completely ruined the business for everybody, undercosted it massively, as he always does, lost 80 million pounds on it, but you know, he had 80 million to lose, I didn't. So we've seen it coming, and this is my trend forecasting head. Uh, we realized that we can't find that, so we managed to find a really, really nice Korean company that just started Korean PC banks and uh, exited the business to them just in time. So in many ways, it's the, the trend spotting value comes not, not just at the beginning, but knowing where to bow out and when the scene changes early enough that you come out of it in one piece, preferably making some money. Because the duration of trends is very short and at the moment, nobody's going to build a business to hand it over to their children. We had this idea that you know, we will be running this business forever. Well, ended up, CyberCAF has probably had around seven, eight years lifespan. Uh, they still exist, and actually in Korea, they're thriving because the kids like the local tournaments run from local cafes. But that was very different than what we were doing in Europe. So, so trend forecasting is really about durations and about understanding the velocity of each of the trends. Uh, so when I got out of that one, I had this, this really strong idea that <laughs> women like shopping. I was quite surprised by that because I came from Poland. We had no shops, zero, no shops. If you wanted something, you had to make it. But then I discovered that British women loved shopping. That's what they did most of the time with themselves. And I thought, okay, excellent. Would they like to do it online? So I approached the guys from Topshop at that time to see if we could try. Uh, and I had very strong interface background, so I was absolutely confident that I can make it work. But at that time, you know, we had no tests online, we had nothing. There was no shopping online example. So we really had to persuade the board that this was a great idea. And the only one way I managed to do it is because we, we showed them lots of pictures with uh, uh, women shopping online from my cafe. Except for they were shopping online in my cafe with books, because obviously Bezos, um, Amazon was, was already going. So we knew people were buying books online. The leap of faith that people would be buying fashion online was quite serious at that time, and most of that board looked at me like, really, why would people want to do that? Don't you want to touch our beautiful fabric? So I said to them, you know, your beautiful fabric, nine out of 10 is really crap, so you're better off not showing it to them. <laughs> because, you know, at that time, um, Arcadia was just shifting the supply chain to Asia, and the quality was going very well down. So I actually didn't really want to touch it. It was better to have hope and myth rather than the actuality. And it's got worse since, as you might know, reading the papers. But somehow we managed to persuade them. And on the same, at the same time, there was a new head in Daily Mail. And I would completely follow Nick in terms of networking. We, we had to piece some sort of fund together to do it, because Arcadia didn't want to give me enough money. So we went around networking and having lots of dinners and you know, treating our levers badly. But we bumped um, into Daily Mail people who were just changing the generation. The old guy passed away and Jonathan Rodermeyer took over. And he just came out of Harvard, or Duke, I think. And he was like, okay, so what's this new thing? What are we doing? And it was complete coincidence. But I basically brought two companies together that actually never worked together before. So sometimes 
networking triggers events that, you know, they were sort of there to happen, but they wouldn't have happened without you, you know, drinking a few many pints of beer. Uh, so we did that for a while, and that was quite interesting adventure because there was no trend. You know, there was no trend. I made the trend. So my point on the trend setting for today is that the best trends are the ones that you create. And that might be tough, but they, you are in control of the trend and you can be directional. Uh, if you follow, yes, it's like Microsoft follows for many years and they ended up coming off the cliff because there was nobody else to follow anymore. Uh, but at some point, you have to take ownership of your trend. So where we are today is this. We have a lot of data, thanks to Nick and DataSift and everybody, just loads of data. Nobody's got a clue what it means. Data is flowing at us at the speed of light at the moment, and it's just fire hoses everywhere. Uh, I do a lot of retail at the moment, and I can see my poor customers with these heaps of data dying, because what's happening, the data, the, our ability to gather data has run ahead of our, the, our ability to interpret it. So unfortunately, unfortunately, I worked alongside uh, Dan Humby when we were developing the Topshop e-commerce because I needed some data. And I watched the, the incredible story of, you know, from riches to rags, because that company has been valued at about two, two billion, and about 10 minutes later, it's valueless. So Tesco attempted to sell it, punted it for about two million pounds, ended up, it's unsellable, because guess what? Then Adam Hamby had no knowledge about anything. All they were making money was selling Tesco data to other companies. So you as a Tesco customer was basically cannon fodder for them selling your data. Once Tesco tried to sell it and close the feet of Tesco customers' data, Adam Hamby had nothing. So it's a very big lesson for anybody who thinks that they're going to make money of data. Because collecting data at the moment is pretty easy. You know, we all do it, and we can do a lot more of it. Interpreting it, owning the piece of knowledge, very hard. And I think that sort of parallels slightly the conversation about what happened to Twitter and DataSift. I was around a very similar conversation when one of my co-founders, also co-founder of TechCrunch, uh, Keith Tier, had the first one of the first search engines called Real Names. So if you typed Ford, it would actually take you to Ford website as opposed to 25 imposters. And he got this contract from Microsoft for, I don't know, like billions. Uh, built a beautiful company, Silicon Valley offices, hired the best people, all of them more intelligent than he was, all of them smarter, followed all the rules. Uh, one day Microsoft called up, actually, you know, we're doing it ourselves, bye. So, at that point, we, we understood that actually doing anything with large company is usually a really bad idea. <laughs> and I think that, that was my second guide, guiding principles for my trend spotting. So basically, try to work in a way that serves ecosystem, not a single company, because you're never in control of them. And even today, well, recently, I've got an investment in a games company, which is a streaming company, and a little bit of software belonged to a company that has been bought by Akamai. And I had an offer from very, 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 very big company recently, but when they discovered that one bit of code belongs to another company, and we license it, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. Everything has got to be pure, 
So try to build now something that's pure from scratch. You're not going to do it. So it's all kind of moving to quite high probability territory. But carrying on from that, uh, my third guiding principle with train spotting is, is basically like Nick. You follow the smart guys. This is one of very, very smart people who I was lucky enough to meet early on during my PhD, uh, Yanie Bar-Yam. Uh, he's completely crazy, but he is one of the early people who kind of tried to put his arms around complex systems. And what we're living through today, it's not just complex systems getting more complex, they are com getting more complex faster. So the whole thing is complete chaos. Uh, bar, uh, bar Yam has been working on it for many years. I think he's been one of the very early proponents of complex system theory. Actually making sense of complexity and not just selling that, because a lot of people make good living out of decomplexifying, but actually you know, they can just tell a good story. Uh, he is very, very driven in terms of telling at least a bit of a good story. So, partitioning, partitioning out the complexity into small bits. And that is so true, because if you look at all the good startups of the last few years, they do one thing well. It's when they do two things, it gets complicated. When they start doing three things, the whole thing falls off the cliff. So, he taught us one thing that, you know, go back to core, go back to core and decomplexify. Um, and he, he was explaining that to us quite a few years ago, that for a long time we will be gathering more data than we can interpret. Because with the old progress of AI, you know, it's still very pokey, it's still small, it's still years. Uh, so once you define your limitations, you can actually tackle the opportunities. The limitation is the algorithm. So where we are today is this. You know, our favorite Met office got themselves 97 million pounds supercomputer. 16 petaflops later, what's the weather forecast tomorrow? I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, the ability to gather more data, unfortunately, still didn't give them any answers. I mean, it's really lovely for them because, you know, they're nice people, but it's completely pointless at this stage because the tech is just not quite there yet. But what do you do at this point? So. We kind of changed tack from predicting to invention. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Denis Gabor, who was a British uh, Hungarian inventor, physicist. I mean, he invented lots of things, but one particularly strong thing is the holography. Uh, and he came from physics background, so he never really believed in uh, data scoping, but he believed in engineering. And one thing that he told us that when you make things, you impact everybody around you, and the impact is directional. When you set them predict, okay, you impact some things, but is the, is the making, is the physical output which carries more impact. And I think he was proven to be that right, because if you look at what drives, you know, the, the really big kind of shifts that's happening today at the moment, it's all the kind of really, really long shots, so the Aeromobile, which I love, uh, it's based very close to my home in uh, uh, Czech. I'm from Poland, but this is a Czech invention, and it's absolutely delightful. Uh, the RoboSkin, the 3D printed glasses that you can make at home, you know, they are kind of already here, but you also know they need a massive ecosystem to really kick in. So you can transport to death, but you, you can only tell, you know, we will know it will happen, but we don't know when. So the case study which I wanted to talk about today is this one. Um, this is an invention which, you know, beginning was 1994, 
uh, virtual reality, crazy, Jaron Lanier and all of them were dreaming about you know, having a massive industry then. Uh, they was, I was quite lucky because this was when I was just getting into computing. So for me it was, yep, two years, you know, we will all be in virtual reality, no problem. Many, many years later, we're still kind of down to you know, these little cardboard boxes, but it's beginning to happen. So we started tracing in my day job, which is the omnichannel retail development, working with companies to bring a little bit of that long uh, ecosystem building and filling in gaps and filling in the bits that we could fill, doing one thing well, doing a couple of things well. So we started from working with uh, supporting Topshop on uh, AR quite early on, 2014. Uh, it was a big streaming event from a catwalk in uh, Tate Gallery. So everybody was in Tate Gallery, but you know, Tate Gallery, as big as it is, it doesn't take all the millions of Topshop funds. So uh, we managed to get, uh, uh, I think it was a bunch of GoPros glued together, but basically the, the, the thing was streamed to Topshop shop in Oxford Street, where everybody could come and be part of the catwalk, and that worked really well. And it was quite of early on when I understood that actually women can drive that trend. It's an area, one of the few areas where we got the first, because the fashion business got the first. Uh, everybody thinks it's games. I don't think so. I think this is landing very well in fashion because look how many companies are doing stuff. So this is me testing very, very beautiful headset done by Dior. Ah, it was just beautiful. You know, everything about this headset was Dior. It even smelled beautifully. <laughs> so when you lifted it, it was light. It was just, you know, they really took it apart and put it back together. 3D printing every single part in a way that was acceptable to Dior. It felt Dior, it was Dior. Uh, and they, they developed it for, with a very, very impressive um, industrial design agency. As much as I agree with Nick on Haitic agencies, there are some better agencies than others. So they did amazing job and plonked it in uh, Selfridges for four weeks. It had to be supported by this sort of U-shape ring so people don't fall over. But basically you could walk around within the environment of Dior catwalk, seeing this amazing 13-year-olds made up. I mean, you haven't have a view on it, but it was quite amazing. Uh, and everybody loved it. Selfridges loved it because they wanted to put their 10 pence into the ring of, you know, women can drive technology. It's okay, we can do that. Uh, and it fitted very well within the store. It was really, really nice. And, you know, you could be sitting there and forecasting and running data and trying to predict that you would never predicted that strong early virtual reality will come from Dior. It just was not indicated by any signal at all. But it is happening. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger is now uh, testing the VR in the store. Uh, I mean, they are a little bit wild, but uh, again, they approach it from their own kind of Tommy Hilfiger-ish way. And everybody is trying to put a little bit of their own feel to the development. Kaf Kidston is, it's, has designed uh, walk through within her environment, mainly for people who are mums, you know, because if you're a mum, you still love shopping, but you are tied into little things that run around and can kill themselves easily. So you don't really want to drag them to Kaf Kidston store or any other store for that matter. It's something that men always forget that, you know, shopping for women is a delight. It definitely drives a lot of our activity, but you know, nobody's got time to do it when you have small children. That's why people shop online. The early shoppers in my top shop and Dorothy Perkins were women who would love to come to the store, but you know, they didn't have time. 
So that's, that is very much what drives it. That, you know, given half a chance and lots of free time, of course people will be in the stores. It's fun, it's nice, it smells nice. But unfortunately, we have no time. So that's where all this stuff comes in. Um, but we did find some ways of attracting men into it as well. So there's a project going on designing your own kitchen. So basically you plonk the headset on and you walk within your own kitchen. And somehow, you know, men don't really care about tiles and shades and, you know, but with the virtual reality headset on, yeah, you know, I'm there, I'm there, I'm picking the tiles, I can do that. So in a way, I think that's probably will bring the design together for these kitchens being designed by both husband and wife, not just a wife and then getting the neck from the husband too late. Uh, one which probably made more impressions than most is the checking for what your villa will be like when you actually get to Dar es Salaam, to your place. Remote checking of the environments. Um, we were testing that for quite thoroughly and discovered that older people loved it. Because for them it's very important if they get to the place there that it's even, that it can support their limitations, particularly people with disability. So you really want to know where you're going. That need to know what the place is like at the other end is very, very strong. They will overcome any technical limitations, but find out. If you give them an option. So I'm not talking about, you know, saga holidays, but it's probably landing with slightly older people because it's much more important for them to know what the holiday experience is like on the other end. Other steps, other, and young moms as well, but the whole environment structure, very important. Uh, but coming back to the VR, the, the trend is there, but the other trend which we spotted sort of coming along with it was all the fitness stuff. Uh, as we know, we have an obesity problem in UK. I mean, very big obesity problem in, in Central Europe at the moment as well. So we started looking at you know, how to get these kids off the gaming. Obviously, the boys game 24 by 7 if you give them half a chance. But that doesn't necessarily help their fitness. Uh, so we came across Virtuix and ended up investing in them, which basically was an offshoot of an army project for uh, virtual reality training while you can move around. So it's got a little pot, uh, and you wear special shoes. They kind of look a bit dorky now because they look like bowling shoes. But you know, it will get better. Uh, but the thing is that you can move. So you can exercise, you can duck, you can dive, you can, when you do call on duty, you can actually be there in a physical way rather than you know, lying on the carpet. Uh, so although I generally don't touch hardware, it's not my bag, I always, kept my nose out of it because a very, very different thing to exercise a startup for with hardware. Uh, we're just not well geared up for it in Europe. You need to live in Shenzhen. It's just, there's a lot of things not to do. If anybody here, anybody here with a hardware startup? Yeah, no, okay, stay out of it. But this was such a delight. And again, that comes back to the delight concept. It just was so beautiful. Uh, we couldn't bring ourselves not to. So it works very well. It gives you, the, the pod is uh, interactive. You need special shoes, but they are not too bad. And basically you can move around. What is lacking at the moment, there's not quite enough games that allow you to do that without feeling like you are in a 10 Beaufort scale on the high seas. So the, the sickness element is still there, but technology is moving quite fast now. And I think we're not too far from being able to offer a really physical, vigorous exercise. Uh, which will allow you to do virtual gaming, but also keep your body 
a little bit in better shape. We still have to stay fat for a little while longer while we're working out on the uh, details of the number of frames per second, but it's kind of getting there. So on top of it, once we started playing with Virtuix, they just had a, a second run successful fundraising, we came across an Israeli company that added the gesture recognition. And that kind of really closes the loop because then you can do everything. They've just been acquired for a lot of money, but hopefully they will carry on. And the last thing on, on that one, it all comes to life when you can be in the middle of the football pitch or whatever sport you're watching. Uh, this is unbeatable. When you actually experience that, you never want to watch sport in any other way. So again, the delight factor will drive the market. However hard it is, it will get sorted. In the very the same way, like the key trend that drove us, my company, probably most of your companies, is the mobile. Again, the delight, you know, nobody predicted that. When we were sitting in Siberia back in 1994, we had quite sort of, you know, tech for good social framework. So I spent ridiculous amount of time going around various parts of London and helping women in computing in Eastern Tower Hamlets and just kind of, you know, trying to get people on board so they don't get left behind. Little did we know that actually, you know, we didn't have to bother because sooner or later, smartphone came up and now everybody has got access to more computer power than NASA. So things happen when the delight is there, the market catches up with it. And that probably drives 90% of the invention. So one thing on the trend spotting, which I'm religiously sticking to, we don't touch anything unless it's driven by the consumer uptake. So I gave up very long time ago on B2B changes that are good for the companies and should be done. It never happens. Companies only, only change if they have to. And the only thing that they have to do is if the consumer does something before. So the consumer got themselves a smartphone and kicking and screaming through gritted teeth, retail had to deliver. So I watched with amazement when River Island produced an app. You have no idea, River Island is just like dinosaurs. It's one of the companies that probably hasn't changed from the day one. But you know, the consumer had the mobile, they had to be there, they did that. They re-engineered a whole set of business processes to deliver a beautiful app. So it can be done. If you got River Island to do anything else, they would never do it. You know, they IT people, do, oh no, can't be done. Because the role of the CTO in large retail is to be defensive, to be protective, to look after the printout, to look after the cash deal. You know, they don't want to be up there with the pioneers. Oh, no, 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 too high risk. But if the consumer is there driving it, come hello high water, it's gonna happen. So we try to go within the area that lends itself to an ecosystem which adapts because it has to which kind of leaves out big swatches of areas that don't have to adapt. Um, and what's left at the moment, that slide is already slightly out of date, but what we happening, what's happening at the moment is people just filling in the gaps. So what hasn't been done? Health and beauty. Last 12 months, more startups in health and beauty than I've ever seen my whole life put together. Uh, food and drug, you know, everybody's into it now. Amazon, everybody. So this percentage just goes, when you see that graph next year, there will be massive. So that's very, very large opportunity and really one not to miss. But because I'm an interface person, I come at it from the interface point of view, the question for me is, we haven't really updated enough the smartphone interface. It kind of feels awkward, everything is slightly wrong, everything is like, you know, it's either too small or too big, or it's just not right. 
what we did is we shoveled in what we knew about PCs to tablets and mobiles without stopping. We just basically took the whole set of principles, having stopped for 10 minutes to rethink it, and then off you go, customer, you go and shop as if it's a PC. And people say, really? I'm not doing that. I'm quite happy to watch my cats and feeds from social media. I'm not shopping on it. So it's really only now when people are beginning to figure out that actually it's a one-thumb business. It's only one thumb. The rest just don't even think about it. So the current big trend happening is whoever started early on Tinder and watched how delightful it was, for obvious reasons, uh, is picking on the one-thumb interface. So Grubble, which is one of the nicest, probably, uh, thumb shopping apps, have been added quite early. It's still not quite as good as it has to be. It still has a lot of legacy from a PC. Uh, icons are still small. There's a lot of wrong things about it. You kind of have to think more like a, like a kiosk. And we're not thinking about it yet. We haven't made that leap yet. But it's very successful. You know, they've running about 500 million turnover on it. And it's just amazing how quickly people take into swiping. So that shift is happening now. But it's amazing how slow it's happening. People still preparing and holding on to what they know from the olden days. Uh, what goes with it is also a lot of things got easier, but one thing hasn't. Returns on e-commerce are still enormous. You're still talking 20%, 25%. Shoes, 30% on average. I mean, it's a horrific number, absolute horrific number for business process. You have to deal with it, so people do. But, you know, over the last two years, the cost of Logistics for every retail company is just doing that and that and higher and higher. So it's about 18% of cost. It's unsustainable. So we've got to crack it somehow. And oddly enough, the people who are cracking it first are luxury companies. So this is a system from Michel Rigucci, which is a very sort of shishi Italian brand, invested masses with one of the Italian startups to actually run uh, 3D scanning in the shops and also offer it in sort of central points. Slight trouble is at the moment it only runs within one brand. So if you are a faithful customer of uh, Lobotin or Jimmy Shoe, then you will be fine because they mold and your CD scan, 3D scan, will overlap and it will tell you if the shoe fit or doesn't. But if you happen to be walking around different shops and want to use different brands, you can do that because everybody uses different mold. Uh, so this is kind of early stages. We haven't really got an answer to it, but somebody will come along and do all the molds for everybody, load it up and provide software service. I mean, you know, it should be done, hasn't been done yet. Opportunity. Uh, the, the trend which we're working on at the moment is the contactless and Apple, Apple Pay. They're kind of landing not quite the way we thought we they would. The, the contactless has been driven predominantly in London by uh, underground. So underground has forced people to get used to waving the credit cards at the machines. So at the moment it's about, in December last year, it was about 1.2 billion pounds. Out of 622 million on credit cards. So it's still a tiny fraction. I know it's a lot more than I thought it would be. Because to me it felt, it felt very insecure. But because underground force people do it once or twice, you know, people are kind of odd, as we learned with our cybersecurity adventures. It could be very dangerous, but if you're used to doing it, you forget it's dangerous. If you do something every day, however crazy it is, by the third day, you're just doing it. 
So unfortunately, this is that case that, you know, this is not the safest thing to do, but everybody's doing it, it must be okay. So the contactless has done more than Apple Pay, which is inherently much more safe, does slightly different things. But uh, now charities have picked up the contactless, so you can swipe while you are in Starbucks or coffee, you can swipe your, car, your card and put 30p into your favorite charity. It's going like that. People love doing that. It's easy, it takes split second, you have your card out anyway, why not? So again, that will drive a lot of adoption. Uh, and something that I, I'm particularly interested in, uh, in the stores, because when I started working with stores over the connecting the internet into the store and omni-channel, I realized that people have no idea what's going on in the stores. Uh, some reasons are correct because privacy issue is very strong and you know, no retailer wants to stick facial recognition camera right in the gate because people would just get very unhappy. So it was a little bit of slow progress, but eventually it's happening in a slightly more balanced way in terms of privacy. There's a company called Walkbase, which I'm sure many of you know, uh, which came out of, the, of a Scandinavian startup. But they, look, they do this beautiful in-store uh, hot maps. So basically it's like hot jar for, for stores. It makes such a difference. You know, when you see the retailers, the delight on the faces of the retail manager who actually can see what's going on. You would have thought they can see it with their naked eye, but not. And particularly because the manager in large companies doesn't see many of the shops on the floor. They only see very kind of top level numbers. They see the spreadsheets, they see the effect, not how it's happening. They really love it and they can adjust things almost in real time. It's very much like running a website. Um, so they, they're probably the leader in the area, but it's a massive area, open, totally open at the moment. And just to sort of close it off, the key thing for me is cost. So when the companies have to do something, they only do it because the customer demands it or because it radically changes their cost structure. So one of the companies I'm involved with is the Hydro 66, which uh, we designed and started in Sweden next to the massive amount of dams, which you couldn't do again today because the environmental law has changed. But these dams already exist. So basically, you can have your internet almost free. And that's driving quite strongly the ad adaptation of the new data center technologies because it's, it's got to run on nothing. You know, people have massive demands. The television is kind of fading away. Everybody's watching everything on PC, but uh, on laptops, but it's got to come from somewhere. It's got to be hosted somewhere. Um, and the direction of travel at the moment is cheap and sustainable. So somewhere around uh, Arctic pole up there, when you just open the window and cool the whole thing with cold air, it's probably where we all land. And they just, I'm just very proud of them because they got a big award last week. Um, it was European Data Center Award for best architecture and best sustainability. So Sweden, but operated and owned by, by a British company. So if you need any co-location, talk to me after. Uh, and just to round it up, the, the kind of underlying principles for me is don't touch anything unless it's consumer driven. Uh, swipe right, Tinder interface, filling in the gaps that are in the market. Keep the money as low as possible, cut the cost, and be the trend setter by inventing, not just predicting.
Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.